can I get trick or treaters? Done for extortion. Has Downton got so dull due to writer's exhaustion? It would be remiss of me not to thank you all for your many congratulations uh, on the news from last episode that I am to be a father in January. How is the Hall of Presents coming along? (laughs) Not bad. I've been offered um, free nappies from someone who runs a nappy website. That's good of you. Uh, Or diapers for you Americans. Or shit sacks for everyone else. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But not everyone uh, treated it with the solemnity that it deserves. Dean in Glasgow has been in touch to say, I've just listened to your latest hilarious podcast. Thanks, Dean. Uh, I didn't think it could get funnier until you announced that Ollie was going to become a father. Uh, That's way harsh. Thanks for that. Vote of confidence. Anyway, he continues, what I really wanted to say was Helens with two L's do exist. Whoa. Uh, My wife is such a person. Wow. Lol. Precious as a unicorn. It's two L's in lol as well. Uh, Her father registered her birth ever so slightly inebriated (laughs) and registered her as Morag Helen, H-E-L-L-E-N, which has been a standing family joke for years. What, her father? (laughs) Yeah. Did you ever have the children's books Marmalade uh, about a girl called Marmalade Atkins? Not that I recall. And uh, the reason why she was called that was uh, because her father went along to register her birth and her mother wanted to call her Clementine and he couldn't remember the name. He was like, no, it's something to do with stuff I eat at breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) That's better than um, Marmite. Deja has written in to say... They've already written in. Having a unique name isn't the worst thing in the world. I speak as an expert since my name is Deja. Pronounced like the French term déjà vu. Yeah, you already said that last time. Oh, God. (laughs) I have spent the entirety of my vocal life spelling, correcting and explaining this name. Yeah, I know you said. This seems really familiar. (laughs) And almost 30 years later, I don't hate it, but I do hate you two. (laughs) Sure, I've had to deal with puns like, I feel like I already know you, or haven't we met before? She's certainly heard all the jokes before, hasn't she? She certainly has. Um, The worst part was going to school with a boy named Daniel Vu. (laughs) We hardly knew each other, but the jokes about us getting married were endless. Yes. Well, that's a funny conceit, isn't it? Even all these years later. Unless uh, you're a bit bit feminist about it and he took your name. Playground chants tend not to take account for uh, feminism in later life, Martin. Good point. But Ollie, your baby is not the only new Ollie Man production. That's right. Uh, you might remember that a few weeks ago I mentioned that there was a, a project in my pipes gestating. Oh, teasing. The time has come to shit it out. Oh, God. Uh, uh, I have a new podcast series. Ooh. That's right. Uh, it is called The Modern Man, M-A-N-N. So it's a pun. Have you contemplated calling your forthcoming son the modern? (laughs) I haven't. Brand extension? What's it all about? Tech and trends and food and fashion. So the kind of stuff that you'd read in a men's magazine, basically. It's a men's magazine podcast. Where's the musical theatre? Well, no, there's definitely room for musical theatre. Good, good, good. Because that Um, seems to me like one of your traits that is, uh, you know, very characteristic and kind of modern because that is something that other men's media doesn't deal with enough. Yeah. I I mean, I've I've tried to choose uh, features where I think your average mainstream listener would be interested but they they uh, overlap with my interest so for example i'm not going to do anything about football sorry don't care don't like football there's also quite a lot of football coverage already you can get it if you need it uh but episode one for example i meet the uh, cto of imax and talk about how they build their theaters Uh, episode two i go tasting the best burgers in america Oh, oh so you know general interest did you think they were the best Oh, no, is that a spoiler? <laughs> it's a bit of a spoiler. I, I met the man who writes the list of the 33 best burgers in America every year. 33? Um, yeah, bloody internet. Uh, and I tasted two of them. Mm-hmm. I didn't taste the other 31. 
So I couldn't mm. I couldn't say whether they deserve their place on the list. So you might have had just the 32nd best burger. Exactly. Mm. Uh, but certainly one of them was the best burger I've ever had, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Anyway, there's that. Uh, and then the, the show's kind of bookended by uh, a bit about trends um, and then uh, a sex chat at the end with a lady called Alex Fox, mm. who... Um, We'll take listener questions like we do, but in a much, much filthier way. And really? with much more precise detail about exactly what to do with your cock. Have you learned a lot? Not yet, um, because the first one was about masturbation. <laughs> already I already knew it all. So she was interviewing you, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're a solo sexpert, Ollie Man. Uh, so anyway, we're on, we're on iTunes, we're on Pocket Cast, we're on TuneIn. Uh, just search for The Modern Man, modernman.co.uk. Well, here's a question from Rianne in Sleaford, who says, Me and my husband, my husband and I, have just started watching Gogglebox. We should explain what that is for uh, listeners in other countries that haven't got this. It's a reality show... I guess, uh, in which members of the public are filmed watching TV in their own sitting rooms, and then it's intercut in a comic way uh, the different reactions of different people watching so that you get almost, it's like live YouTube comments I guess you could say, on the shows that the country has been watching that week. It's like crowdsourced TV criticism crossed with reality television, crossed with YouTube commentary. Right, exactly. Okay. What is Rianne's question about Gogglebox? Ollie, answer me this. Are the people watching TV expected to stay in every night all week to watch that night's telly? That seems a bit extreme. I think that the production team record that week's programmes on a little VCR (laughs) and then send a DVD to each family, but they are wearing different clothes each night. So do they pretend they are watching it live? Gosh, it's really... I'd say overthought this. Is Gogglebox a lie? This is like the moon landings all over again, isn't it? (laughs) So, Ollie, answer me this. How does Gogglebox work? Do the people actually stay in each night to watch TV? Okay, I've asked my Gogglebox mole about this. You have eyes everywhere. Um, And yes, Rianne, Gogglebox is a bit of a lie. Uh, One thing my Gogglebox mole was very, very, very keen to stress, though, because they said they get asked this question a lot, Mm -hmm. is it scripted? It is not scripted. It's 100% unscripted. What you're watching is the genuine reaction of real people watching TV. But I wonder how much they record and then edit it down to the five minutes per person. Um, Because apparently sometimes they're there till three in the morning watching TV. Uh, Because they have day jobs, these people. So they start at 7pm or something and watch till two or three in the morning until they've watched everything. Because it's not until they get in the edit that they know which bits were working and which bits they want to use. And they've got, like, what, five, six households... Per series? Sort of. So secretly, my Gogglebox model oh, told no. me... no. Say it isn't so. You sort of know this as a viewer. There are A-list contestants and yes. B-list contestants. So the A-list is Steph and Dom, the posh couple. Yeah, uh, I haven't watched it enough to know their names. Okay. Just tell me the stereotypes that they're fulfilling. Right. Leon and June, the friendly pensioners. Okay. Um, and what's the other A-list one? There's one other... The gay couple? The gay couple, yes. I don't know their names. The gay ones. The male gay couple. The male gay couple. Right, so those three are the A-list, right? Mm -hmm. So what they tend to do is film the stuff with those guys first because they're in every show and the viewers get upset if they're not in every show. And then once they've decided what works with them, they then show that footage to the B-list contestants so that they can Mm. construct an edit around it. So no, they're not watching TV live. Mm. Um, But the reason for that is is quite practical. For the reason that Rianne suggests, uh, you'd have to have a TV crew there every night of the week if you wanted to film them reacting live to everything. Which, unless they all lived in the same building, would be incredibly expensive anyway, given how many units that's going to require. Precisely. Um, So uh, the production team spend two nights with each family. Mm -hmm. They do ask them to change clothes during the shoot fair enough um they don't tell them what to say so when the gay couple sort of get back and pretend they've just had a day's work and they're having a bit of banter that's all natural but that is them having come down from a costume change not Mm -hmm. them having come down from a day's work the people do not know what they're going to watch it's pumped into their sitting room 
from a control room that's in their kitchen. The producer controls right. what's on their telly. And the crew are genuinely not in the room with them so as to be unobtrusive and get genuine reactions, but they are in the kitchen. It's okay. four people in the kitchen controlling the telly. So if you've got an open-planned studio flat, you're never going to get on Gogglebox. You're never going to get on Gogglebox, <laughs> exactly. Um, Bango our dreams. <laughs> oh, shit. We just bought a new sofa for the purpose as well. Your sofa is beautiful, actually, yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, I've watched you on Gogglebox. So, yeah, they are watching everything on tape. So if it's a big show that they know everyone's going to be talking about, like The Apprentice or something, and they have to be talking about The Apprentice, then yep. they'll, they'll have the preview disc. The Gogglebox families will see the final of The Apprentice a few days before everyone else yep. uh, so that they can film their reaction to it on the Tuesday and it will be on the TV on the Friday after everyone else has seen it on the Thursday. They're never told what to say, mm. as, I, as, I, as I stress. Yes. Sometimes they are told what to comment on. So, for example, if Steph and Dom have said something really hilarious about Alan Sugar's shirt... Yes. Uh, then when they're filming one of the B-list contestants, they'll say, look, we're going to show you uh, 15 minutes from The Apprentice, because that's the thing they don't even show them the whole show. Oh, right, because that would just take forever, wouldn't it? Forever. We'll show you 15 minutes from The Apprentice. Just look out for what Lord Sugar's wearing in the boardroom. Right. And that's a steer, so mm. that they're hoping that they're going to say something that will edit well with what the other people have said. I'm just uh, surprised. I thought our listeners were worldly enough to know that TV is... Um Full of lies. There's artifice in it, <laughs> let's say. Yes, but Gogglebox does almost make you think that it can't possibly be done in that way because they're watching news sometimes, for example. Yes. So, But even the news, what they watch, because if you think about it, some of them would be watching the BBC News at 10, some would be watching ITV, some would be watching Sky. Yeah. You'd never be able to get an edit point. So even the news, if there's been a big event, like David Cameron's speech at the Tory party conference they'll be played in the edit that they're going to be talking about from the ITV News at 6 or whatever it is. So they're all talking about the same thing. So sometimes they have to fake and pretend they don't know that this is the news from three days ago. Yeah, It's always the way with things that appear naturalistic. A lot of effort goes in to make them seem that way. Hello, it's Hiley from Glasgow. I have an issue with crying, which is weird to say. Whenever I'm at the height of any emotion, I cry. And it makes it really difficult to stand up for yourself. The worst part is I work in retail, so altercations are unpleasant and frequent. And I can't stop crying. So don't really answer me this. Why do I cry all the time? And is there anything that you can do to prevent yourself from crying? Thanks. <laughs> At least she sounds cheerful about yeah, it. Absolutely. Usually I'd say it's good to cry. Let it all out. You yeah. know, um, don't suppress those feelings. That's the, the classic uh, British technique that has, yeah. has failed us for generations. Yes. Um, but I do think in the context of being a store assistant, uh, it's not really appropriate, is it, to constantly be bursting into tears when you're dealing with customers? No, I don't think I ever did it when I worked in a shop. And you would have had ample excuse to. I really would have. You were in Tunbridge Wells. I, I was. There was dust everywhere, so that can stimulate the tear ducts. Absolutely. I mean, are there physical things you can do to avoid crying in the same way that, like, if you feel a sneeze coming on and you want to suppress the sneeze, you can press your tongue firmly against the back of your front two upper teeth? Can you? Yes. That's never worked for me. It's worked to treat for me many a time. The only thing that stops me sneezing is if I'm sniffing around, kind of willing the sneeze to come on, is if someone then says, bless you, before I've sneezed. Of course. Then I get like shy bladder, but with sneezing. But yes, you can go for a walk. I mean, if you go for a sprightly walk, that's a physical change that will deflect your attention away from whatever was making you sad, so long as you weren't crying because it's very cold in Glasgow. Like people distract babies. But then... Presumably if she's at work, though, she can't go for a sprightly walk. Crying is just a stress relief mechanism, isn't it? The average woman cries at least once a week. Um, If you're crying every day, I mean... Several times, possibly, in retail. I think you are probably pushing yourself over that. The average man sheds a tear, it says here, 1.4 times a month. That, to me, seems like quite a lot. Really? I don't cry. Do you cry once a month? 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I did. I cried at a cup of a cup of Earl Grey a few months ago. I don't know. You cried into a cup of Earl Grey. At a cup of Earl Grey. Why? I was. Just, How did it wound I just you? Was really, I think I was just quite in an emotional mood, and I and I, I made, accidentally made myself a cup of Earl Grey, and then initially I was like, oh, everything's going wrong, and I made myself an Earl Grey, and then I remembered how much I like Earl Grey and how long it had been since I had a cup, and I got really wow. happy and started to cry. Is that why you rarely drink Earl Grey, Martin? Because you're worried about the outpouring of emotion that will result. Yeah, it's very emotional too. I don't want to be all armchair psychologist about this, but I am going to do that. I wonder whether you have some kind of uh, anxiety issue mm. and therefore you need to practice psychological techniques to deal with it. Maybe you're just like afraid of confrontation because you feel like it's a criticism of you. Whereas like in retail, customers are often just assholes and they're venting it at you, but it's not really at you. You don't need to take it personally. So you just need to kind of keep your emotional distance from what's happening and well, train yourself to do that. someone's shouting at you and being unpleasant and rude and... Yeah, but once you realise that it's not really to do with you, then it's a lot easier to deal with. When I worked in a shop and when I worked in a bar, if people were being dicks, I was super nice to them because then they had nothing to aim at. And also everyone around was like, wow, they're being a real dick. So you feel solidarity. Whereas mm. if you act as dickish as them, then the whole situation escalates anyway and no one is on your side. I think also, uh, like, can you think of a situation in which you felt brave and like you were in control of it? Like some people, it's like, I did a bungee jump and I felt like I was immortal and indestructible. Mm. Like it could be something really minor, like I got my tax return done. I felt like that when I rearranged your Tupperware. And I felt just violated. But if there's anything like that that you can think, I achieved that thing and I feel Mm. good about it. And so you can access that feeling at later times and try and use it to calm yourself. Take deep breaths because like shallow breathing causes more panic. A surprising number of people with anxiety, too many to discount this actually, have told us that they listen to us to feel better. Which is always very flattering when we hear that. Very flattering. Um, Because we have never done anything useful for this world deliberately. So just maybe just have one ear on us constantly well just anything that makes you feel calm again find what that is and keep it close to you maybe one of those little fart machines i used to have when i was a kid just makes me feel much more relaxed um, <laughs> it's, it's difficult not to smile when you just let one of those go though actually yes so if customers being really difficult with you and you want to cry just reach down to your pocket and just go <laughs> <laughs> That's, that would be fun well let that me brilliant. deal with your yeah oh, sorry yeah <laughs> So you can't in the middle of the truck. That's not just South Park solution. I love it. (laughs) And you can't control other people's behaviour. You can just control your response. Exactly. So fart machine is one way of doing that. There we go. I've got a question. Then email your question. To answer me this podcast at googlemail.com 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 And now on Answer Me This, a question of sport. Do, 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 I don't care. Do, 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 I still don't care. Tennis, tennis. Alan from Ireland says, uh, Helen, answer me this. Actually, this is interesting. It's interesting, but I still wouldn't find it interesting on a question of sport. When did New Zealand start using the hacker before rugby matches? 3rd of October, 1888. There we go, done. What's a Segment over. What's a hacker? Martin, it's that kind of stampy dance they do. It was a Maori battle dance, but also often quite a positive dance as well so it's the thing if you're as uninterested in sport as all three of us are but me in particular we still know that the hacker happens i still know the hacker well, but, but martin doesn't apparently my niece views love to do a hacker i'm surprised you haven't seen it martin even if you don't care about rugby you will be dimly aware think about it think hard 
on those boring bits of the news where they talk about sport in between the boring slightly balding scottish men who all sound the same going oh well, it's really hard dude in between that let's offend the whole world they'll then show a shot of uh, people in rugby shirts doing like line Hoof. dancing Hoof. But stampy, like macho stampy, line stampy. dancing, yeah, yeah. stampy dancing, macho line dancing. That's, that's the hacker. <laughs> there could have been so much trouble. But it's, it's like, like a sporty lamb chop. But that's, the, the, but the hack, that's the hacker. But the hacker's great because everyone knows about it, and we've just got what people droning our national anthem, which is so plodding anyway. That's not getting you in the mood for quite a violent sport. Well, I wish that we did have something equivalent. Like I wish Macarena. The, no, but the English uh, sort of folk origin would be. Few lines from Beowulf, wouldn't it? Bit of Anglo-Saxon poetry before the match, or like a, a bit of Morris dancing because that's got thumping and stuff. Bits of Henry V. Once more into the breach, their friends. Once more. Mm. What about doing Steps' tragedy dance? I don't see that as quintessentially English. It's funny. And yet, I, and yet it is. It kind of is. I, I suppose because the Bee Gees, the progenitors of the dance, were semi-Americanized, weren't they? They were transatlantic mm. rather than just British. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Hang on. What about doing um, Who Do You Think You Are by the Spice Girls? <laughs> Because also that's, that's a bit that's a bit of a diss to the other team. Who do you think uh, you are? Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, did you watch any of the Rugby World Cup this year, Helen? No, and I think that was a good achievement given how crazy my family are about it. Get this! My family were supposed to all go on holiday together at the end of November and I missed the last family holiday because I was away. So you're including yourself in the list yes. of people that should have gone? Yes. Yeah. In and the now, end of November, which hasn't happened this, yet. Yes, right. they have cancelled the family holiday right. because they've all seen so much of each other going to the Rugby World Cup. <laughs> like, you bastards. They're making me choose. Do you love us more than you dislike sport? Mm. And evidently I don't. I think I dislike sport more than I love anything. Yeah. It's a close one, isn't it? I feel very affronted. In a way... What you football fans listening to this experience when the Rugby World Cup's on, and here I'm talking to the majority portion of football fans who aren't interested in rugby, is what I feel like all the time when people are talking about football. Like, it hints mm. at what I feel like. So your indifference to the fact that even though we're hosting a massive international tournament in our country, that's what I feel like when the Premier League's happening every think, single fucking week. No. I think sports fans are quite a broad church, though. I think people who are football fans, they, they are normally a bit interested in the rugby and a bit interested in the tennis, even if they're not huge fans. I think it might be more like, for you, when a big Andrew Lloyd Webber musical comes out mm. that you're not that interested in. Mm. Like, if they revive Starlight Express, you're like, I'd love to see a big musical spectacle, just not that one. I, I see the point you're going for. That's yeah. a very poor choice. I mean, I'd oh, cream sorry. myself if Starlight what, Express which, came Which one? Martin Uh That's not Andrew Lloyd Webber. Okay. You're embarrassing yourself. That's people in Schoenberg. I would... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would be... Uh, I feel like I'm baiting you at this point. <laughs> I would be disinterested if The Woman in White was revived. Okay. Do you mm. now feel like a sports oh, fan? <laughs> after all this time, you've explained sport to me, Helen. Found the way in. Well done. So anyway, the hack <laughs> yes, it's a generic name for a Maori dance. And I've read quite a lot of things saying it's ancient, but it was invented around 1820, which I think doesn't make it ancient. I feel like to be ancient, you probably need to be at least a thousand years old. Yeah, but in the context of a new country like New Zealand, then it is, isn't it? It's not a new country. It's just Europeans tipped up recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah. On the 3rd of October, 1888, uh, the New Zealand team first performed a hacker before a rugby match against Surrey. And <laughs> they must have been intimidated. Sorry, would That's have been. They were just so fucked off back into the changing rooms. Um, what, what actually inspired them to do that? Because sorry, short sorry, they weren't like, well, we're about to face our greatest enemy we've ever, ever played with, being at the big guns mm. against Surrey. Mm. I suppose it was just a decision to take the equivalent of of the warm up exercise and bring it onto the pitch. It's not that dramatic a step forward, is it? Yeah, it was quite effective branding, wasn't it? Because. 
coming from the other side of the world to Britain was a huge undertaking. Coming over here, stealing our rugby games. Coming over here, and and they're like, here's a New Zealandish thing to impress yeah. you with. Yeah. But it was based on a battlefield dance and chant. Well, it is properly intimidating. I mean, yeah. well, they're big, strong guys. It's a show of strength, isn't it? The, the yeah. lungs, hearing the lungs exactly. and the stamp of the feet, and, and it also prepares them for battle as well. Gets you in the mood for some fighting and shouting. But now you know they're going to do it in a way. It loses some of its power. For for sorry, that first time, that would have been seriously bone shakingly intimidating. Mm. I think. I think the big thing that put the hacker on the map was a match they played in, I think, nineteen oh five in Britain, where it was filmed. And therefore it became the dancing craze of sweeping the nation's pitches. Mm. So then it would be so identified with the New Zealand rugby team. They kind of have to do it, even if they didn't want to. If, I don't know about you, Helen, but to me, it feels like intermission time. For the intermission, we like to dredge up a bit of Answer Me This Past, uh, all of which is available <laughs> for purchase at answermethisstore.com. Yes, along with all four of our albums that you can only get there and on iTunes and Amazon, and also uh, our apps, uh, and you can donate to the show there as well. Thanks. And today's intermission is from Answer Me This, episode 54. Who would win in a fight between the Grim Reaper and King Midas? The fun, of course, (laughs) being in that whoever the Grim Reaper touches will die, and whoever King Midas touches will turn into gold. And thus die. <laughs> so King Midas is the uh, mythological king. He was given a wish by one of the nasty Greek gods. So he wished that everything he touches turned to gold, which was all right for about five seconds when he got up and turned his bedside light on. He was like, oh, it's gold. But then put his clothes <laughs> on. They're all cold. Tried to eat his breakfast. He couldn't sit, turned to gold. Yeah. Just uh, touched his mouth. And then he kissed his daughter. She turned to gold and thus died. Oh. But presumably if he couldn't eat or drink anything, he would die fairly soon himself. Yeah. So how far does it kiss. propagate? Like if you step on the... On, on the floor of your, your house does the whole house turn to gold or just, no. the, or just the, the floorboard that you're touching what about his piss would that turn to gold as soon as it exited his body so many questions yes which classical scholars have been debating for centuries King Midas if you're listening <laughs> get in touch yeah well, well that's the point isn't it sweat gold King Midas is dead right so surely yeah. the Grim Reaper has won that particular battle yeah. oh good point it's been had <laughs> Well, listeners, I don't know what you got up to during that intermission, but we were having a discussion about an alternative comedian that wants in a routine about Robert Plant. Good times. Uh, which feels like the right time to say, let's check our phone line and see who sent us a question this week. The number is... 0208123 Or you can Skype answer me this. Hello, this is Derek. I was just wondering, what was Crystal Palace as an area called before um, the Crystal Palace was built. Um, that's it. Upper Sussex. It's nowhere near Sussex. Lower London. Middle South. <laughs> I don't know. What was it called? Well, the Crystal Palace was uh, put on top of Sydenham Hill. And Was um, it called Sydenham Hill? It was Sydenham Hill, but I don't think there were that many buildings around at the time. I think it was on the edge of several different areas. So it was kind of in between Sydenham and... Upper Norwood, which I think technically it's still called Upper Norwood. Is it? Yeah. But the reason why there are so many Norwoods around this area of South London is because uh, this all used to be Nautbert Oak Forest, the Great oh. North Wood, even oh. until, basically until they put the Crystal Palace up and then knocked down all the trees and built Victorian terraces on them. So having earlier explained to some listeners abroad what Gogglebox is, I yeah, think we Crystal- should probably explain what the Great Exhibition of 1881 or whatever the hell it was was. Okay, right. Crystal Palace, first of all, is the area of South East London in which... Martin and I live, and we're recording this podcast right now. We are sitting in their sitting room 
I'm recording this show. And it is a suburb that uh, was created when they built the Crystal Palace here in 1854, which previously had housed the Great Exhibition in Hyde Park in 1851. It was the biggest plate glass building the Victorian era had ever seen, and it was full of shit they'd stolen from other parts of the world. That's not quite true, actually. Once it was in here in Crystal Palace, it was replicas of shit we'd stolen from other parts of the world. <laughs> and they had Queen Victoria open it both times. Really? That's a that's good, good booking, isn't it? Well, like, she lives would... locally. Yeah, but... She's in London. <laughs> but that's A-list. When the Crystal Palace organisers were thinking, OK, well, you know, we're reopening the exhibition centre. Who can we get? Peter Andre doesn't exist yet. I, I, well, they probably aimed low to begin with they were probably like let's get a minor royal let's get one of the grandkids and someone probably said should we just ask like you know they can only say no see if she's free let's just ask if the queen's free maybe she had such a great time at the first one she's like oh be delighted (laughs) second crack at this would you if you could go back in time and go to the crystal palace exhibition unknowing what you know now so obviously their displays of the future of electricity you wouldn't be like i know (laughs) (laughs) imagine you'd be impressed by that kind of thing yeah would you like to go do you well, think it would have been a good event? Yes, because also in the Crystal Palace Museum, there are videos, very early videos of some of the stuff that happened outside. So there's like this guy who's doing somersaults whilst a dog is running over him in the opposite direction to which he's going. Now that's entertainment. It is I entertainment. Mean, that is still Saturday night. That's Britain's Got Talent, it isn't is it? It is Britain's yeah. Got yeah. Talent. Yeah. I don't know because the situation uh, for women in the mid-1850s mm. wasn't as good and I bet the toilets were uh, yeah, a mixed bag. Yeah, but Queen Victoria, she would have had a decent lavvy there. I bet she just went where she stood. Who's, who's going to say, oh, Queen, can you not shit right there? <laughs> she can shit wherever she likes, yeah. her country. I do kind of miss the... Pageantry. I'm nostalgic, even though for it's from a time before I was born mm. for the idea of having a great exhibition where the world stuff could be and you'd see stuff you'd never imagine having ever seen I yeah. just feel like that can't really happen to us now we've well, seen too much we're so mil- connected yeah even the Millennium Dome which happened before most of us had internet access yeah they managed to fluff that didn't they well conventional wisdom at the time and now is that they managed to fluff it and if by they you mean the government pissing our money away then yes compared to the great exhibition of 1851 i actually was the target age for that at the millennium more or less i was 19 and i went and i thought it was awesome actually i really enjoyed the millennium zone i thought it was a bit weird having a odd blackadder sketch that didn't really work starting the whole day but in, in a kind of Danny Boyle doing the Olympics oh let's celebrate the fact that we like weird comedy kind of way it was okay yeah but um, in, in terms of assembling the greatest stuff you've nicked from all over the world yeah bit of a fail they had a really good aerial show that they did nick from Cirque du Soleil mm-hmm. I mean I thought that was good they had golf carts I've never seen one of those in London before so it was like a little dome full of Vegas <laughs> yeah, a little bit I was in um, San Francisco recently yes. and I walked past a museum and I thought okay four dollars yeah. yeah okay this museum was a museum about the Panama Pacific World Trade Fair that was in San Francisco in 1915, mm. which was kind of like the American version of the Crystal Palace yep. uh, exhibition. Uh, and I went in and they showed you some of the cool stuff they did. And, you know, again, like from a 21st century perspective, steam locomotives, big deal. you know. But obviously, <laughs> I could imagine that that would have been a big deal at the time. And it was all stuff you'd expect, you know, for them to be displaying. Right. They also had some really seriously questionable stuff. And what was great about this exhibit now in 2015 is is they kind of had to be honest about the fact that some of it was a bit dubious or racist. So included in the original exhibit in 1915, uh, there was a doctor who was keeping premature babies in incubators and they had that as a kind of freak show display. Oh, so he'd no. go to you when you've just had a premature baby and say, I'm developing the new transformative technology of incubation. 
Um, but the trade-off, if you want me to treat your baby, is I'm going to take it on a tour of America wow. to show off to other people how the science will work. Do you want your baby to die or do you want it to be part of the circus? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, tough decision, right? I wonder how many of those babies survived. Well, I mean, in fairness, more than if they hadn't been an incubation freak show. But I mean, from yeah. a modern perspective, better they weren't performing at all. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> the other thing they had was an exhibit promoting the benefits of eugenics. Wow. Yeah. And they had an exhibit as well saying, and this wasn't, questionable this was just bad science at the time they had an exhibit talking about radium and how it was going to be the, the mineral of the future and help everyone uh, yeah. so from that point of view i think i'd quite like to go to the original crystal palace see that exhibit okay. well of course the classic thing in, in terms of you know what science got wrong is the dinosaurs which uh, they they did it did very very carefully apparently the the the, the sculptor the dinosaurs which are in Crystal Palace Park to this day Victorian Sorry, yeah, yeah. fiberglass dinosaurs arranged around the lake absolutely huge life size dinosaurs there's uh, what what are the iguanodons and plesiosaurs and the ones that they just kind of busked it <laughs> do you think he saw us he's the one hiding behind the bush hey! uh, no, the one that's hiding behind the bush is the one where they're like we've only got the skull so we don't know what the body was like just put it at the back <laughs> <laughs> it's underwater Miss yeah. yeah so they um they, they tried really hard to get it accurate but you look at it and a lot of it is nonsense like mm. the iguanodon which and then we now know has a huge thumb has actually got a horn yeah, but do we now know it or do we now think it with best scientific evidence well, now yeah. oh, well, that's, it's science isn't We're it we're going to seem never... silly in the future exactly you know, this conversation sure, you know, is laughable sure. to a yeah. dinosaur expert you look at it in a hundred years time that they go oh yeah the Victorians actually had it right it was those idiots <laughs> in the 21st century that got it right I'm an answer me this fan I listen with my nan she is not so keen she finds it too obscene I follow them on Twitter though Ashton Kutcher's fitter I want to take things further just one step short of murder I want to look like Harley Man. I want to smell like Harley Man. I want to be like Harley Man. I want to chase like Harley Hey, listeners, I know how you like to demonstrate affection with money. Roman Mars, is that you? <laughs> I can't do his voice. Oh, God, if only I could Pretty do Roman's close, voice. Just like he was in the room. Because The Allusionist is in Radiotopia, which is an American podcast collective, I'm learning so much about asking people for money, which in Britain is just like, oh, well, no one's making me do this. Oh, no, I can't possibly. Oh. This is you asking for money for your other podcast on this podcast. That's how brazen you are about asking for money. Give it. Yeah. Because um, uh, it's Radiotopia fundraising season. And if you want to finance 13 magnificent audio shows for a tiny bit of money a month. Including then, uh, The Illusionist. Including The Illusionist. Which is very fine. Martin specified on his donation that none of his money was to go to me. <laughs> anyway, if you fancy kicking in a bit because you like the shows, then go to radiotopia.fm. Fundraising season at the moment so i'm doing weekly episodes oh and also i know you like asking me questions and i'm going to do a reddit ama on the day this podcast comes out which is the 29th of october so don't leave me in there on my own i'm scared of being alone in reddit yeah so i'll, I'll tweet the link at helen zaltzman i've heard me. everyone there is very friendly yeah not they a just, single death threat they just might want to share some images with you that you might be best not to click on <laughs> hi it's claudia hello helen and ollie what is the origin of the Russian doll? Like, are they Russian? Well, they're obviously Russian. I'm Lily. <laughs> um, but, like, why are there so many? And why is the middle one so tiny? 
if the middle one wasn't tiny, it wouldn't fit in. You see? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's why. Unless you had an absolute whopper of a doll that was like four stories high, then you could have quite a big doll in the middle, but still much diminished. I've got this idea, Ollie. It's a load of dolls that are nested. They're exactly the same size. <laughs> yeah. If they were making more human centipedes, like that would be his next thing: the human Russian doll. Oh wow. Oh, that's, that's grim as fuck. I've heard them referred to as Matryoshka dolls. Yeah. I mean, is that mother? It means little matron, and it's from the lady's name Matryosha, which is derived from the Latin for mother. So well done, Martin. It was probably an idea the Russians nicked from Japan. Oh. I was not aware of many Russian tourists visiting Japan now or then. A bit of Russia is further east than Japan. So that's true, yeah. Not that geographically that's true. far. So, so the Japanese toy either used to feature the seven gods of fortune inside each other, or the uh, sage Fukurum, which I may be pronouncing wrong, apologies, with his four students inside him. Mm. Wow. That's a sackable offence now. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not the way you'd even depict the relationship between a student and teacher, is it? Like, actually, if anything, it would be the students with the four professors inside him. Yes, yeah. the point. Your learnings make, thought, make yeah. the man. Or, or the professor with the students as satellites. Yeah. But then it makes sense that there's a kind of protective role for the doll on the outside when it is a little mother doll. Um, so the first official Matryoshka doll was made in 1890. The first official one. The first official one. <laughs> like it's a new Russian pair one. of Nike trainers. So they, so they think the idea for making it uh, people came from this Japanese toy, but the Russians were already making nested carved wood things like apples and eggs. Because, oh. because that's just a handicraft tradition. That's just a thing yeah. that you can make. They love to do some intricate painted wood it's goods. It's never had any purpose apart from decorative, has it? There's no religious no. meaning or anything. They did often depict religious figures or different storytelling tropes and political things. I wonder... Characters from operas. You know how compelling it is once you start... Like, the moment you take off the outer layer, no one has ever not gone all the way through to the core. No. No one's ever done two and thought, right, that's enough for me. How, Seen could, enough how doll. could you resist? You can't... You, it's impossible to how resist. How could they get any smaller than this one? <laughs> <laughs> and yet, on the uh, actual shelf, I'm just like, ugh, what a decoration. I don't yeah, want well, that. Because mm. there's not much to do except open it and then reassemble it. I painted one once... Oh, yeah. Uh, as a wedding present for my friend Joanna Neary, who supplied some of the jingles for this show, the Mary Poppins one and the Bjork one. She's a character comedian, so I painted her in her different comedic incarnations. Was there a danger that you were making some sort of analogy between the size of the doll and the relative funniness of the various different characters? It was more the ones which were visually simpler yeah. went within. Well, that's good. Yeah. How did you build them? Could you buy from Hobbycraft a... Blank can, Russian doll. You can buy blank Russian dolls. Can you? Strongly recommend. Good gift. Although then it's not a good gift to have. It's a good gift to receive yes, briefly. It's funny. But then what? You're right. Where's yeah. the playability? Where's the, yeah. Where's the repeat visit? Anyway. It's just one of those things though, isn't it? That it's so tactilely satisfying. Like yeah. um, Newton's Cradles or one of those things. It's just, just to do it feels really brilliant. Even though it's such a simple physical act. But that, yeah, the, the, the unveiling of the core within. I'm fairly sure if tourists didn't exist then russian dolls would have died by now yeah but then, i think so they've only existed because that's the thing you bring back from russia but the same with like pen holders with the leaning tower of pisa on and little plastic gondolas my parents have got a russian doll i don't think they've ever been to russia I don't no i've never been to russia and i've got a russian doll like maybe it's how putin <laughs> spies on all of us yes probably it's just, what's it doing in my house why is the little one so little do you have a 
Russian doll in here that you no. don't recall getting. God, maybe. Maybe, maybe it's you do. creeping up behind There's, me. Exactly. There might be one on the ceiling. Uh, Watch out. Anyway, uh, the first known Russian Russian doll was made in 1890 by the woodturner Vasily Zyozdochkin. Bless you. And it was designed and painted by Sergei Malyutin. Uh-huh. And the outside doll depicted a woman holding a rooster, so she was the mother, and then it was all of her children inside, and each of them had different items to show a different angle of their life. So one of them had like a sickle, a basket, a bowl of porridge a broom and in the middle was a baby so it was a family without a father right so that makes more sense because the ones you get now where they're identical boring when they're identical Well, there's no reason why they're getting smaller when it's going down to a baby that makes sense it's generations then isn't it yes so generations receding into the past maybe yeah yeah but then you're acting like nothing changes between generations when that's inevitable I bet some of our listeners have got Russian dolls that are like super novelty ones. So more novelty than the Gorbachev, Reagan, Thatcher one. I'm feeling a gallery coming along. Please. Send them in. (laughs) That would be fun. I bought my friend Brendy a robot one because he's big into robots. Oh, yeah. I don't know whether he plays with it that much. Of course he doesn't because it's a good gift and it's not a good toy. But Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm interested to see other people's because you get the novelty of seeing it once, yeah. which is the same as being given it without having to have it on your shelf forever. Good point. Yeah. So really what you want is a tumbler of other people's yeah. Russian dolls. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Good that they got their name on it, though. That's good marketing. The Japanese must be kicking themselves. Is there a British equivalent? When tourists come here, what do they all bring home that's uh, like a thing to show you've been to England? A money box shaped like a phone box or a post box. <laughs> yeah. A little model Probably. soldier with a busby. That. Yeah, I guess. A teapot. It's not, yeah, but exactly. It's not the same item. It's not, there's about 10 things you could name, but none of them are quite, you know, it's a bit like, I don't know, you go to Canada, you, you could bring back some maple syrup. Or it's not like the one thing everyone brings back, though. It's not the I Heart NY t shirt. Exactly. Either. Russia's like got that nailed now. Well done, Russia. Yeah. Well mm. done. Here's another question of Chochkis from Corinna from Brooklyn, <laughs> who says, Ollie, answer me this. Where do stress balls come from? I have a theory that they're a laboratory mistake or offshoot or byproduct when they were trying to invent polygrip or something. <laughs> I have an infectious disease stress ball. It's pretty gross and addictive. Well, that is disgusting. Does she mean one that looks like a kind of foam germ and you I, squeeze it and it's funny? It sounds to me like something someone in her family vaguely related to medicine was given free at a conference. Oh, good. You yeah, good yeah. well. We're a company. We make drugs. They target infectious disease. Here's a fun toy so right. you can remember us. Yeah. One of those. The ones you're talking about, Corinna, are sort of an accident because they're usually made of foam rubber and foam rubber itself was a laboratory accident. Originally, when they designed it, they didn't know what it was for. It was just mixing two chemicals together. A guy called Otto Bayer in was, the 1930s. Was that just his tea break fun? It was, yeah. You know, he's a chemist. He liked to mix chemicals. He did it. And he came up with foam rubber and he was like, oh. Well, that's interesting. You know, it's springy. Don't know what you'd use that for. And now it's in like every chair ever. Um, <laughs> but at the time, they couldn't work it out. So, so like, better make these stress balls, I suppose. So in that sense... Give uh, us something to squeeze while we work out what to do with all the foam rubber. <laughs> exactly. So in that sense, it was an accident. But no, stress balls are very much designed. But the, the, the earliest stress balls aren't the ones you're talking about. The earliest stress balls are from the Ming Dynasty uh, in about 1368. So um, those, like, the two metal balls that you roll around in your hand... I exactly. remember those. Oh. Those seem like quite an early 90s trend piece as oh, yeah, well you in meant, Britain. You were meant to roll them without letting them touch each other. Well, really? My hand's too small for that. Yeah, yeah. The idea is that you would be concentrating so much on doing that that you wouldn't, you'd wouldn't. forget about... That's why I play video games. I don't have stress balls. There was a bit of like new age dance music, wasn't there, in the 90s that <laughs> in my mind has people playing with those balls in the video. Of course. Like, the the, 90s. Are you thinking of Labyrinth? No, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm thinking of... Um, do you remember... 
It's going to be a fine day tonight. It's going to yeah, be a yeah. fine day oh, tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> and it just that ad infinitum, yeah, wasn't it? But, well, no, there was... It's a fine day. It's a really nice day. I can't remember how it goes, but there was a second verse. But anyway, in the video for that, I imagine the woman who in my head looks like Hufty from The Word had those stress balls in her, in her hands. That yeah. might not be true. Well, because even when you're having a fine day tonight and tomorrow, and you're probably singing about drugs, you might want to, to help your circulation, exactly. which is what those balls were for. So, so yeah, so they stimulate your acupressure points. Yep. Yeah, that's why the Chinese had them, uh, and, uh. and it, it does kind of make you a bit less stressed. It's a bit like a rosary, isn't it? It's a thing that has significance, but really, it's it's just a nice thing to play with. But even the squidgy stress balls, they had precursors prior to the foam rubber discovery because people used to make them with the balloons filled with baking soda. Oh, did they? We've had quite a lot about stress in this episode as well. We have. Well, if you want to de-stress, there is of course no better way than, than playing with balls. <laughs> no, I was going to say write your feelings down in an email and yeah. send them to us in the form of a question, Helen. Yeah, or spit them out into our voicemail service. Yeah, and then we'll have another episode of this show to bring you in two weeks' time to relieve your anxiety everyone will benefit yeah it's a cycle isn't it anyway if you want to send us those questions all our contact details are on our website answermethispodcast.com and in the intervening period remember to check out all of our extracurricular work including martin's song by song podcast about tom waits helen's podcast the allusionist and my new show the modern man and that is at modernman.co.uk a clever wordplay thank you helen a wordplay i yes. meant <laughs> Bye! Bye.